Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and thank you for joining us today for Live Dharma Sunday. Please note that if you have called in to listen to today's broadcast, that all lines have been placed on mute to avoid background interference. If you're listening from any of our Bright Dawn sites, note that it is not necessary to call in. You may have to wait a second or two for the loading and buffering process to complete, but if there is still no audio, please refresh your page. For more information about Bright Dawn and its activities and links to our social media sites, please visit brightdawn.org. Once again, thank you for listening to Live Dharma Sunday and enjoy the talk. Welcome everyone to Live Dharma Sunday for May 27th, 2018. Koyo Kubose here. So very, very glad you joined us on this Memorial Day weekend. I'd like to describe for you the some uh, local uh, Memorial Day service that's held in Chicago. A uh, little background on that and then significance, spiritual significance. As I thought about Memorial Day, um, it's when the whole Japanese-American community has a Memorial Day service at Montrose Cemetery. Um, They've been doing it every Memorial Day for I don't know how many years. Um... There are two Japanese Christian churches and several Japanese American uh, Buddhist denominations or centers represented. Um, In the Buddhist Japanese American ministers, they have a federation, um, maybe six ministers or so, and each one rotates year to year in leading the Japanese American Buddhist part of the service where they lead the chanting. We have two Jodo Shinshu temples, a Zen temple, Nichiren temple, Zen temple, and also Shingon. Uh, American Legion makes its presence with the posting of colors and um, uh, rifle salute, firing blanks into the air, um, and then short messages by various people. And each uh, temple or church or community um, prepares for Memorial Day be- by cleaning up the cemetery, replacing flowers, and so forth. And um, uh, it's a nice community event, 
it's maybe the only community event that some people attend all year. There used to be a annual picnic, but that um, fell by the wayside. And it's interesting to note. I don't know if other Japanese, uh, other ethnic groups, uh, have their um, Memorial Day service and who participates and so forth. But it's certainly a nice community event. Very rare for um, all the religious organizations to get together. And you see old faces. And you go and walk around, maybe before and after the service, you visit the uh, uh, tombstones or grave markers and read the names. Um, and in, in the case of the Japanese-American community, there's about three sections at Montrose Cemetery uh, where, where predominantly they're all Japanese-American individuals. Um, buried. Some families might buy so many plots. And as I understand it, um, there's a Japanese American community organization, not a religious one, but uh, it was formed in the 30s, I believe, 1930s, where certain ethnic groups had a little trouble being buried in certain cemeteries. And Montrose Cemetery was open to different ethnic groups at the time, and the Japanese-American community formed a, what, they, what was called a Mutual Aid Society. And they had an annual meeting where representatives of the different civic or, or, civic or social organizations and the temples and churches sent a representative, and they would talk about uh, community things going on. Okay. Um, so to serve the American Japanese-American community in Chicago, this mutual aid society was in charge of what well, they bought, tracts of land from Montreal Cemetery, and then they were the go-between uh, and sold individual plots in those areas to whomever uh, wanted to you know, make preparations uh, for burial of ashes. In the Japanese-American community, I don't know, in, in population in general, but um, Cremation is the most common uh, procedure. Uh, back in the day, I think it was not maybe not quite so common. They had a casket burial. Um, but each plot could hold several urns in a concrete vault, and so it's up to maybe three names or so could be inscribed on the on the tombstone and sometimes if uh, let's say if a husband had passed away and then uh, the family would have the tombstone engraved and sometimes they would put the wife's name there and her birth 
birth year, but she's still alive. So, but it was just economical to do that engraving at one time, and then the date, uh, year of the date of death, could be added later. Some widows joked that visitors could come and they could. They don't know how old the wife is, but they can see the year of their birth. Um, <clears throat> but when you walk around in this area, it's a sense of ethnic togetherness, case of the Japanese-American community, where you see people that you, names that you know. Uh-huh. So, oh, yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Um, my parents, we, we split my parents' ashes. And um, so some of their ashes were were buried in Montrose cemeteries because they had a plot. And um, we kept two urns at Bright Dawn Center. Like most families, I bought a plot. Adrian and I there, and so did my sister and brother-in-law. So we flank our parents side by side, and um, I'm not sure I'm going to have any any uh, ashes burial. You know, usually family has an ashes burial, and they and the minister would come out to the cemetery, and they would have a short service for ashes burial. Um, Montrose Cemetery also has a crematorium there, and. And um, a lot of times uh, after a funeral service, when the family schedules it, you might have a cremation service. And uh, usually it's not, usually it's private for the family only. And that's pretty emotional time because then they know that's usually open casket and then you have a service and then the casket goes down to where the crematorium is. There's a sort of a small chapel uh, on the floor above. And if if the family wants to, they could go downstairs and they could actually see the cremation through a window if they wanted to. Some ministers make a point of doing that so that and when they see the the body being burned up, it makes more impact. They want that impact of the reality of death and so forth. But most family members uh, don't do that, okay? and they just conclude with the cremation service and then later on disposition of the cremains. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> sometimes they don't have to bury them. They could keep it ashes at home in Illinois. Um, there's also uh, a small mausoleum in Japanese American section, and sometimes engineered people <laughs> without a family. Mutual aid also takes care of those, and some ashes could be kept in the mausoleum until burial time. Some families keep the ashes at home, some had their funeral home keep it, and then ashes burial. I don't know, sometime in the future. Uh, so as a minister, you get to know a lot of people at uh, 
community events. Um, there's a Japanese American uh, Citizens League or other kinds of uh, civic organizations that have events and <clears throat> ministers attend. And so they get to know a lot of people in the community. So not just their own congregation. And um, when you walk around, you see, you know, you see uh, a lot of names and it evokes a lot of memories. You know, you might have shared some things with that person, activities and so forth. And it's always on occasions like this, memorial services, funerals, and so forth. Um, and it's nice to go to a cemetery. Um, you receive some teachings. You, in a way, the deceased are the ones that are offering the teaching of impermanence. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to live forever. Oh, yeah. And as you look at the man, person, you know, there's a sense of interdependency, of sharing life together, of generational uh, succession, you know. Before it was, when you were younger, you had some so-called buffer generations before you and the great change that we all have to experience. Your grandparents are still alive. Your parents are still alive. Okay. And then your children, you, your generation. But then, inevitably, grandparents have gone. Parents are gone. You're orphaned now. <laughs> oh, you joined an un membership in an unwelcome club. You became an orphan. Now, you're the, your generation is the next in line. These kind of things, you know, are rolled up in the two major core teachings of Buddhism, but the reality of life, impermanence and interdependency. You could use Sanskrit, Pali words uh, for these two teachings, okay? but I just use the regular words of impermanence, interdependency. And I noticed many years ago that the both words start with the letter I. And so sometimes I play a word play on those on that and I say, these are the two eyes with which Buddhists look out at the world. Impermanence and interdependency. Okay. These and then I'll point outwards with two fingers from your eyes. You know. And um when you really are impacted by these two teachings, uh, you can't help but be filled with more sincerity, prioritizing your life, gratitude, uh, humility, and all these, well, we could call them spiritual virtues. Huh? Okay, okay. Well, I see that uh, Christopher Kakio uh, is on our switchboard. He has taped a message for us. He lives in Utah. He was in part of LM9 group. So let us hear from Christopher Kakuyo. 
Thank you, Sensei. I'd like to start my Dharma glimpse with an experience that happened to me quite a few years ago, but has really resonated and stayed with me all that time. Um, and and it was an experience I had in the midst of um, great amount of suffering and depression, and it had been going on for quite a while. And it was very strange. It was just one Wednesday night, some odd Wednesday night. And I had been contemplating some things, and I think I finally got to this kind of a point of just letting go to what I was experiencing. And something at that point shifted. Something shifted dramatically. And I was overwhelmed with an intense gratitude for everything. It was so interesting. So interesting. I was grateful for everything I had experienced up to that point. And everyone I had come in contact with, everyone I had ever known, literally everyone I had ever known in my whole life, faces, experiences just started flooding into my mind and into my heart. And and it was interesting. So the first thing I did was I started going through my email list, sending out heartfelt thank yous to everyone I knew on my list. And then I started calling up friends that I could get a hold of and just telling them how grateful I was to have them in my life, how grateful I was just for their very existence. And I called friend and foe alike, and it didn't matter because I was so grateful. And it was in the space of gratitude I wept and I laughed. And and it was rather confusing because the number of tears that fell. I remember thinking, I'm crying so hard, but I'm not sad, so why am I weeping? And I realized that for me, that is how deep and profound gratitude expresses itself. It is a deep and profound emotion. That night, I had also realized that for many years, I had seen love as the highest emotion, the goal of religious practice, that love encompassed all. And I have had those moments, moments that I've loved everything, even the street sign that I was standing under. And yet, that night, I experienced something even more expansive, more sublime than love. I experienced an unbounded gratitude. This reminds me of a few lines from Guillaume Sensei Kabose, where he says, We should always be ready to die, able to say thank you for everything. In some ways, that is what I experienced that night. That was my moment of thank you for everything. And remembering that helps me to understand what Guillaume Sensei was teaching and gives me a goal on how to live my life. Before finding the the Nambutsu of gratitude, I had no idea that something as simple as gratitude could be a path for practice and awakening. It reminds me of something Jeff Wilson, a Jodo Shin minister, has written. Quote, In Shin Buddhism, our main focus is the practice of gratitude. We practice simply to give thanks for what we've received. It's a small shift in one's perspective, but when pursued, it can be transformative. This came home to me the other night when I was holding my little boy in my arms. He was cuddled against my chest, and I was just feeling him breathe and thinking how much I loved him. And I just repeated, thank you, thank you, thank you, over and over and over again. And the love expanded exponentially. 
and also the gratitude expanded even more. I think the cultivation of gratitude is important because it acts as a catalyst that can expand positive states of consciousness. Cultivating gratitude by recognizing and by expressing it manifests more gratitude and deepens our awareness of oneness. I'd like to close with a quote from Guillaume Kubose Sensei, where he writes, quote, The realization of oneness involves the highest type of communication and respect. If your life is realized in this sense, you would see that the whole world supports you. You exist because others. Everything supports your life. This totality, this oneness, evokes a gratitude and a great joy beyond explanation. End quote. So today, I would like to share with you and close my Dharma glimpse with the Nembutsu of Gratitude. Namo Amida Boots. Namo Amida Boots. Namo Amida Boots. May it be so. Thank you. And have a wonderful day. So. <clears throat> yeah, well... Uh, I think gratitude is uh, our spiritual practice, you know. And important realization, I think, is that uh, gratitude, as the Dharma glimpse led into it, is that often it's during a not a very positive life experience. You would think that gratitude comes from all oh, knowing all your blessings and that that's not triggered by a negative emotional event, but it is. Somehow you don't really realize that until the realities of life that we call negative occur and strike close to home. And uh, <clears throat> I think uh, if we were to collect stories of life stories of people where they had deep gratitude experiences, I think you would find that most of them occurred, say, when they visited, uh, say, a dying parent in a hospital. Okay. Now, why does that elicit gratitude? Oh, gratitude for that you shared life together. Okay, not gratitude for the fact that they're dying. Okay, but the preciousness of sharing life together. You can't help but saying thank you to one's parents, to friends, anybody in that and this general kind of situation where death is close. Um, so I think that's an important shift in perspective, as it was put. Um, 
So it's not just a superficial, oh, I'm grateful for, for, for this positive thing. I'm grateful for my health. I'm grateful for food. I'm grateful for things that support my life. But for human beings, the reality of life, all the things that comprise reality of life. And in fact, I remember my father's article saying that, you know, in the spiritual world, misfortune is fortune. It was because you got sick that you stopped taking your help for granted and you said, oh, gee, you know. Uh, So any kind of event somehow makes you uh, well, intimate or power, more powerful uh, being touched by the reality of life. Uh-huh. Um, and in that sense, strong emotion can be channeled into really feeding into the shift in perspective. And that is part of practice, okay? Not just something that happens, just happens to oneself, but to cultivate this kind of a, well, you could call it a, a, a wider perspective, something just beyond your own selfish desires and wanting good things and not wanting bad things for oneself, okay? But like it was mentioned, gratitude for everything, huh? Uh, all experiences, and uh, how I think if someone's full of gratitude, now maybe it's too much of a strong statement, but I don't think you could too mentally ill if you have a lot of gratitude in your life, because I think a lot of mental illnesses when a person is too self-centered, So I think it's it's spiritually healthy when you realize, well, whether you call it a power beyond the self or whatever, but indeed, indeed, food for thought on this Memorial Day. And that's all for today's broadcast. Till next time, keep going, and you have a beautiful day. Thank you.